Although it is quite rare these days for us to write long correspondence, letters, especially in this day of emails and texting, perhaps you can remember back to when you wrote academic papers in school, that it is common towards the end of your letter or towards the end of your paper or even towards the end of a section to summarize what you have just said and perhaps clarify certain issues that uh, may not have been part of the main body of the text, but are things that you wish to address. Paul does exactly that as we find ourselves not at the end of his letter, but at the end of chapter 7, which corresponds with the end of his teaching on singleness and marriage. And so we will look at some concluding matters of marriage as well as one in particular, uh, which is a specific scenario that he addresses, and that is that of those who are widows. I want to say that I've been encouraged by all of the positive feedback that I have received from this series on singleness and marriage. I'm thankful to you, and I praise God for that. Several of the singles in our church have actually reached out to myself and my wife asking how do they know if they should be single as they begin considering perhaps even staying single, evaluating if they have the spiritual gift of singleness to remain faithful to the Lord in a maximum way as we have seen. But at the same time, there is a lot of confusion, not just among our singles, perhaps more among our singles who are seriously considering this huge decision and life-changing choice. But among all of us, there are probably a lot of questions still, a lot of wondering and confusion about the specific nuances of singleness and marriage. A lot of those questions I will actually be addressing in our Q&A in a couple weeks, but some of it I will address this morning because I believe Paul answers those questions, specifically the question of how do I know or what do I need to do to make sure that I am indeed making the right choice if I choose to be single for the sake of the Lord. Well, turn with me as he closes off this section, this important and powerful section on singleness and marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 36 through 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 36 through 40. I want to remind you that I read and preach from the New American Standard Version And perhaps this morning, more than any other Sunday in the past, my mentioning that is very important, as you will see in a moment. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. In unpacking these verses, I want to give you four final thoughts on singleness and marriage. 
four final thoughts on singleness and marriage. But before we get into that, before we get into these four thoughts in our outline, I want to clarify some exegetical points about this passage. And I'm actually going to spend a good chunk of time doing this. I think this will clear up some confusion. If you followed along just now as I read and you are reading from the ESV or NIV, you are already confused because there are some significant differences in translation. Not just reordering of words or a different English word that can mean the same thing. Significant differences. And what I'm about to explain makes a difference in the specifics of the passage, but does not change the major overarching principles regarding marriage and singleness. And that's very important. But I do want to be fair to you and to be clear as your shepherd and as one who interprets the Scripture on your behalf on a weekly basis to help you see, uh, maybe not fully understand, but at least grasp why there are two different versions and what that means. The great disagreement comes down to one that we have seen before, uh, but is the contrast is more stark here, on what the word virgin is referring to. Now, there are several explanations, four in particular, that have been offered. Uh, there are more, but there are four that are generally accepted or even considered. There are two that are the most common because they are the most likely, and those are the two that you will find in the translations in your laps right now. Let me start with the first. Some see the word virgin as the NAS, which I just read does, as the virgin daughter of, of course, a father. Therefore, in the passage we just read, Paul is addressing that father. This passage is for the Father. Others see the word virgin, as the ESV and NIV translate it, as a man's fiancée or his betrothed, as they would use back then. And so Paul is addressing that man, the male fiancé. Now, which definition you pick has implications on the whole of verses 26 through 28, but does not, again, change the major principles. And I'm going to give you a brief overview of both views and how each of them relate to the whole passage. Now, let's start with the interpretation that the NAS chooses, which is that Paul is addressing the father of an unmarried girl. Keeping in mind that the word daughter in the NAS, if you have it, you'll see it's in italics, and that indicates to us that it's not in the original Greek of the New Testament, but has been added by the translators for clarity. Now, to fully understand this interpretation, it helps to know that in Paul's day, in the Greek and Roman cultures, the fathers had control over the marriage of their daughters. Now, stick with me. Whether you think that's good or bad or whether you're upset right now because of Uh, current social issues or political issues, stick with me. We're talking about history. We still hold on to the remnants of this practice today in the tradition of a man asking his girlfriend's father for permission to marry her. And then if he says yes, it is the father who walks the bride down the aisle and hands her to the groom. And back then, dads had so much say in the marital status of their daughters that some Christians had committed their daughters to a life of singleness in dedication to the Lord, we can assume, with the agreement of the daughter. 
And why we can assume that, we'll see in a minute. And so, this is the scenario that Paul is addressing in this view. So, what we have been saying over the past several weeks about the gift of singleness was not so much an issue of the woman choosing singleness for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of ministry, but here in this context, it was the father choosing that for his daughter. Again, like a woman would do, uh, who would do that today, to choose singleness for the Lord, the father back, back then was doing this not as some sort of constriction or punishment, but with good intentions, seeking his daughter's happiness and seeking the glory of God. Now, add to the mix the ascetics. These are people we haven't mentioned in a while, but they were a problem in Corinth. And if you remember to probably a few months ago now, they were the ones who had convinced the Corinthian believers that it was actually good to abstain from sex even though you were married or especially that you were married. And they had apparently even convinced some that not just what Paul is saying, that it is good to remain single for the glory of the Lord and for service, but that it would actually be wrong to be married. It would actually be akin to sin for a single person to get married. And that you can see why uh, they were uh, given the title, the ascetics. And in this view, this is what Paul is addressing. A man has commended his daughter for the sake of the Lord to singleness, but now, in verse 36, she is getting past her prime, as we would say it. She is getting past the marrying age, and she decides now, you know what, Dad? Actually, I think I want to get married. By keeping her single, again, verse 36, this dad is now acting unbecomingly or improperly toward her because she wants to get married and he's now forcing her to stay single. She has a newfound desire for a husband, quite likely a specific person that she is attracted to, a friend that she wants to go to the next level with. And so Paul's response is, you made this commitment before, but now just let her get married. If she wants to get married and you think it's the right thing to do, let her get married. You are not in sin for doing so. Then verse 37 in this view says that the dad is also doing well if he chooses to keep her unmarried. Of course, if they both agree to this. Verse 38, either is fine, singleness is better. Now, here's the other view, which the the translators of the ESV and the NIV uh, adopt. And I'm going to actually explain a little bit of how we can get such two differing views. The other view is that Paul is addressing a man who is engaged, and the word virgin refers to his fiancée. Now, here's what makes matters even more confusing. The phrase, past her youth which we uh, kind of uh, defined as pastor prime, right, that we saw in the last view, can actually mean in the Greek also to have strong sexual passions or to be fully sexually developed. Perhaps that second one helps explain why we can come to those two views. One means she is past her youth, and thus marrying age in this context. And the other view means to have sexual desires and passions. 
And as different as those translations are, it may help to understand that both of these views refer to being past a certain age in physical development, specifically from puberty on. And so you add to the understanding that there is a historical context that back then men and women got married much closer to puberty than we do in our culture in America today. And I don't mean instead of 28, it's 25 or 20. I mean in their teens they would get married. Yes, Mary and Joseph were teenagers when Jesus was born. And so you understand that if it was normal to get married or at least betrothed and then married shortly after, um, very close to puberty, right when you hit puberty or a year or two after puberty, then you understand why it's so important that maybe even becoming 20 years old or early 20s would be past your youth and past a marrying age for a woman. And clearly we understand how a man, as soon as he hits puberty, will start having sexual desires. Before hitting puberty, clearly no desire to get married. Probably even would say it's gross, it's yucky. But once they hit puberty, there is a physical desire for that. And so we see how there are these two different views. Now in this view, the fiancé view, Paul is saying that because of your sexual passions, you, man, you are going to start possibly acting improperly towards your fiancé, perhaps trying to push the boundaries of physical intimacy too far or even saying things to pressure her to do so. This man clearly does not have the gift of celibacy because he desires to have sex. And so Paul says it's okay to marry her. You go on to verse 37. It's the same point. It's also okay to not get married and keep her as a virgin, to keep her single. Verse 38, again, both are okay. Singleness is better. Which is the right view? When I tell you that there are two views, and I hopefully you can even uh, with a spirit-informed discernment assume this, that because two reputable translations of the English Bible hold two different views, that we're not talking about one view is held by us and another view is held by atheists or secular Bible scholars or even liberals. These are two views that conservatives, good scholars and theologians, hold either way. Now, what is the right view? The Greek is not definitive either way. It says the word virgins. We don't know exactly what he's referring to. And then he uses this Greek phrase that can refer to either sexual passions or just being older as a woman past a marrying age. Scholars have come to their own respective views, and again, there are more than just these two. And the way they have come to these views is by looking at the other usages and contexts of these words in Scripture, but also in secular writings, Uh, obviously writings from that time, to see how the words would have been used in a normal context. Understand that 
the people who uh, penned the New Testament were writing in the common vernacular of their day. They were, they were uh, using the idioms and the phrases that people would be familiar with. Okay? And so the Greek is not definitive either way. My personal view is I learn, lean toward the father, uh, excuse me, I lean toward the fiancé view and not the father-daughter simply because of the context and the usage uh, of the terms elsewhere in Scripture and again in secular writings. Even just simply looking at the flow of Paul's argument uh, since we started this, um, this series weeks ago, it now doesn't really make sense to now bring in the fathers and to address him. And so again, it's not definitive. I personally lean towards the fiancé view, but I would not be dogmatic about it because it's simply not clear. That being said, we go to my initial premise that the main points regarding singleness or marriage are clear, there's no debate, and it is these principles that guide us whether or not uh, you have uh, a daughter, whether or not uh, you are female, whether or not you are engaged. So now, let's turn to Paul's four final thoughts on singleness and marriage. The first thought, final thought on singleness and marriage is the concession. The concession. I'm going to read both the NAS and the ESV uh, for our first three points, just so those of you using the two uh, versions, which, by the way, the reason I do that uh, and I make mention of the ESV and NIV uh, almost every week in my sermons uh, is because our church, Grace Church of the, the Bay Area, uh, is almost split in half uh, as to uh, half of us use the NAS and the other half use the ESV. And the third uh, most popular version in uh, our church is the NIV. And so, quite frankly, it is not a uh, for theological reasons that I often bring up what the ESV says, uh, it is purely for a pastoral and shepherding reason. When there is a clear difference in word, I want to make sure that those who are using a different version than I am are on board. I simply uh, don't want uh, to get lost. The reality, I don't want anyone to get lost. The reality is, uh, though I study and read and memorize from the NA- NAS, If everyone in our church used a different version, I would preach from that version because what is important to me uh, is that I shepherd you guys properly. I preach in a way that you understand. And as you know, uh, I often go, even when I don't mention it, I go down to the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic anyways, so the English version doesn't really matter ultimately in my exegesis. Anyways, let's go to the concession. Again, though I will read both so you are all on board, uh, I will ignore the details which I have already explained regarding the two views and focus on the bigger principle in each of these points. Verse 36 is where we get the concession. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. ESV. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. 
it is no sin. So whether it's the father, the girl, or the girl's fiancé, Paul wants the Corinthians to know that despite all that he has written, despite his spirit-inspired preference and advice, it is not wrong, it is not sin to get married. And the point or emphasis that Paul is making is that when it comes to marriage, Christians do have an option. You can stay single or you can get married. Neither is sin. This goes back to the previous verse where Paul says in verse 35, this I say for your own benefit, not not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Remember that word restraint means a noose, one that you would put around an animal to make them go wherever you want. He's saying, I'm not saying this to force you to do what I would prefer, to force you to remain single. You do have a choice. What I really want, Paul says, is for you to have the most undistracted devotion to the Lord as possible. And of course, that is maximally possible if you remain single. Again, singleness is Paul's preference. It is not a command. And so to be clear, when I say that you have a choice between marriage or singleness, we are not just stating the obvious that you have the ability, the legal right, the physical ability to stay single or married. He is saying that in God's eyes you have a choice. Okay, for example, when it comes to lying, personally, we can choose to sin and lie Or we can choose to obey and not lie. We have a choice, personally. But biblically, you don't have a choice. You cannot lie, biblically. God doesn't give you a choice there. In regards to marriage, we have a choice both personally and biblically. They are both allowed. And in part, Paul is most likely addressing the ascetics, who said that marriage is sin, but we know he is also voicing concern as a pastor and a shepherd. He doesn't want anyone to think that because they have the desire to get married, that that makes them sinners, failures, or somehow second-class citizens. Don't beat yourself up just because you want to get married or because you are married. It's okay. You're not in sin. So that's the concession. Yes, Paul wants you to stay single, but it's okay if you don't. And it's definitely not sin either way, so long as you do either of those biblically. So that's the concession. Let me give you a second final thought on singleness and marriage, and that is the conditions. The conditions. And I believe this point will be most helpful for those who are considering singleness If someone chooses to stay single or perhaps are considering whether they have the gift of singleness, whether or not they can do it, should do it, what are the conditions that need to be met? We've already seen earlier in the chapter that the desire or passion for intimacy already disqualifies you. Get married. You don't have the gift. You're just going to come into problems. I know it's a stretch, but when We force people to be single when they shouldn't be single. They're just going to have problems because they have that desire to have intimacy. And what I mean by it's a stretch is we see this in the Catholic Church. 
where according to their rules, nuns must stay single and priests must stay single. And I don't think I need to go into details as to you knowing throughout history, but revealed in just recent history, how big of a problem that has become, especially for the priests. They have that desire. They're forced to be single. And so that that desire comes out not just in sinful ways according to Scripture, but even evil ways according to secular society. But beyond that, the desire for intimacy, Paul gives us four additional conditions in verse 37 to consider if you desire or think you might want to be single. And even if you are not sure, it's worth going through these points. Look at verse 37. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. ESV, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. And just to clarify in that view, I know it's confusing, but the idea is that he would remain single. Um, It's confusing because to keep her as his betrothed, there was more to it than being engaged in our day. Some of these people would actually have what was called a spiritual marriage where they were actually living together but were not having intimacy. And so in this view, um, I, I, don't, I don't take that this is, that's what it's referring to. But just so you know that in the culture, some of them would be betrothed and they would live this spiritual marriage and where uh, they're helping each other like married people, you know, helping with whatever, the finances and helping keep house, but they would not be intimate. They weren't married. They were simply uh, betrothed. And and just for the sake of completeness, the fourth view, uh, again, that I I don't believe has uh, as holds as much water as the two that we're looking at is the leveret marriage, which came from the Old Testament, where basically uh, because um, your, your brother died, before he was able to have a child uh, with his wife, then you as the next oldest brother would then uh, be, uh, provide um, a child through your now wife, your sister-in-law, to um, continue the family name, which was uh, much more important back then than it is for us today, at least in our culture. Okay? And so uh, the, the idea here would be then you would remain single, and she would remain as your betrothed, or even the idea, uh, a second idea in that view would be then you would even give her up because if she wants to be married, then you would give her up and let her marry someone else, okay? And so, again, those are not views that I would hold or even consider um, because they, they're just not, uh, there's not as much evidence for those. They're on shaky ground. But back to our point and the bigger principle, and by the way, If you are completely confused by the last five minutes, don't worry about it. Come back. Just going through the verse, we see the four conditions. One, stands firm in his heart. Two, isn't under constraint. Three, has authority or control over his own will. Four, has decided in his own heart. And we'll see that these overlap a bit. And I will tell you that this applies to men and women as they consider singleness. So these are not Uh, conditions for should you be married, 
These are conditions that need to be met for you to choose to stay single. So, if you want to know if you should stay single, first, stands firm in his heart. To stand firm means to have an established condition of standing. In other words, you're not just standing firm now, but this is an ongoing condition. In other words, you are certain. This is not wishy-washy. This is not back and forth. This is not, I'm going through a tough spot. I want to remain single. And then this, you meet this guy or this girl, and you're like, oh, I, you know, maybe marriage is for me. And then you find out that they have a boyfriend or girlfriend. You go, nah, I should be single. This is not for you. You're not standing firm in your heart. This is not back and forth, constantly changing your mind because of situations or different scenarios or people that you may meet. We know that the heart is the center of the individual. It's where the decisions come from. It involves both the intellect and the emotions. And so if all of you, if everything involved in in your thinking and your decision-making process is constant, you have stood firm and continue to stand firm in your heart that you have no desire for marriage, that you want to stay single for the Lord, or even marriage, you kind of have a desire, but you're kind of like, meh, I could take it or leave it. And that is a continuous thought. Then you have met condition number one. Second, being under no constraint or necessity. This refers to an external necessity or pressure. So your desire to stay single cannot be because someone is pressuring you to do it, whether explicitly or otherwise. This, of course, is not talking about the Scriptures pressuring you. This is not talking about Paul pressuring you. This is not talking about pressure from me as I preach to a group of a 100 people, but someone specifically in your life pressuring you to do this. And it goes both ways, right? Whether they're pressuring you to get married or pressuring you to stay single. So your choice is not about others, what they say. It's not about others' expectations, singleness or marriage. My parents just expect me to get married, for example. This isn't even about what people believe about your life. Well, you know, I know you really well, and I've looked at your past relationship, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. We take advice into account, obviously. We, we take into account people who know us well and the Scriptures, of course, But we cannot choose singleness or marriage simply because someone else thinks we should do it. This has to be something that you have decided. How else would you be under a constraint or necessity to get married? We've seen it already. If you have sexual passion or desire for sex, that is a constraining necessity. That means you should not stay single. Condition number three has authority over his own will or having his desire under control in the ESV. This simply means your motives are pure. You truly want to do this for the Lord. You're not, again, trying to please other people. You're not trying to look spiritual. You're not trying to get something selfishly, as we've talked about before, more time and money for yourself to do fun things. No, your motives need to be pure. Lastly, has decided this in his own heart. 
Again, this needs to be a personal conviction that you have come to by yourself. Only when this is done will this commitment be deep enough to sustain. You get that. Some of you struggle with the fear of man greatly. And it is almost shocking sometimes how long someone can keep up appearances or sustain something, a Christian, simply out of the fear of man. But staying single for the next 10, 30, 40, 50, 60 years just because of the fear of man, that's impossible. That's going to cause a lot more problems in your life. It has to be a personal conviction. And by now, we are well aware of Paul's preference for us to be single. So it's no surprise that at the end of the verse, he says, he will do well. If you meet these four qualifications and choose to remain single, you will do well. To do well is not talking about a moral superiority. It's not talking about a greater holiness. We've talked about this. What he is talking about is what he has written so many times in so many different ways is to do well is that you would choose something that is spiritually advantageous to you and to all of us. Because if you do singleness right, it's service for the Lord and to God's people. And so, to do well in this way, to meet these four conditions, to do well in choosing to stay single and then fulfilling that choice, following through, understand that this involves a serious, in-depth examination of your own heart before the Scriptures in front of God and then choosing what is best and will not negatively affect your service to the Lord. In other words, this needs to go beyond just a convicting response to a handful of sermons. You need to evaluate this before the Lord. The assumption being that you're actively serving the Lord already, And so you understand the joy that you can continually or continue to experience by choosing to remain single and dedicating your life to a service of the Lord full time. I don't mean vocationally, but just with all of your spare time rather than coming home from work and then it's family or becoming a stay-at-home mom or whatever it may be because of family not because of serving the church, serving the Lord. So when it comes to figuring out if you should be single or not, this is probably the best starting point to examine whether your heart is right through these uh, four different conditions. Okay? Let's move on. Thirdly is the conclusion. The conclusion, verse 38 So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. ESV, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Here we have Paul's conclusion, though we have seen it multiple times already in this chapter. So then shows us he is drawing a conclusion from everything he has written so far in this topic. The final summary the conclusion 
of everything that he has said. Marriage is good. Singleness is better. We've seen this all along. This is no surprise to us. I do want to make clear, though, that when it comes to choices, the fact that one choice is better does not make the other choice bad. And again, we've seen this all along, okay? There is good and bad, but there is better and good. So just because singleness is better doesn't mean marriage is bad. By way of review, what makes singleness better are the present distress in verse 26, which if you remember, we generalized as just the challenges of living as a Christian in this world. The shortened times, the shortened time rather in verse 29, meaning that we are in the final days that were inaugurated by the coming of Christ in His birth. We are in the church age, and the less distracted we are, the better, because this is the final chapter of earth and life as we know it. And, of course, the general extra concerns of marriage, which we saw last week. And now, the matter is pretty much settled and concluded. Singleness is better. Marriage is still good. But he adds these final two verses, 39 and 40, to clarify his teachings as it pertains to widows and, by implication, widowers. So our fourth and final, final thought on singleness and marriage is the clarification. So we've seen the concession, the conditions, the conclusion, and now the clarification. We won't need the ESV for this one. Verses 39 and 40, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead... She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, excuse me, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Paul is again highlighting, emphasizing the permanency of marriage. Divorce is not an option. And we know both Christ and Paul's teachings on this topic that divorce is not an option. Well, what about your, if your spouse dies? Well, Paul is then basically saying, then you are free to marry again. You are no longer bound to that marriage because that marriage has ended biblically through the death of your spouse. Of course, even with widows, he'd prefer that you stay single. Keep in mind, though, and this is very important to help us understand the context. Keep in mind that because of modern technology and science today in America, we tend, and rightly so, to think of widows as elderly because we just live longer. We recover from simple illnesses that we wouldn't even see a doctor for, like the common cold, that people would, could die of back then. This was not consistently the case in Paul's day when death at a young age was a lot more common than it is today. My point is, don't just say, or don't just think that Paul is referring to people who are in their 70s or 80s who they've lived a long, good life. They've been married for 60, 70 years, and now their husband dies, and so now you're free to remarry at 75, 85 years of age. That's included, but that's not the only demographic that he's talking about. What you also need to keep in mind 
to understand the full thrust of what he's saying here is that being a single woman back then, especially if you had kids, young kids, was not only socially trying, but financially difficult, if not impossible in those days. Women generally did not work. They did not make money. They needed men to provide for them. And one of the reasons the church is told that pure and undefiled religion is taking care of widows, James 1.27, and probably why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.14 that he actually wants younger widows to marry is because of this. They need to be supported. Their kids need to eat. The reason I bring this up is that you understand that whatever challenges you may face being single, and let's be honest here, for most of you, the challenges of being single in America, or I should say the American church today, is not really social. Right? If anything, the, the culture pressures you to stay single. It's not financial. Some, many of you, have better jobs than many of the single and married men in the church today, talking uh, to the women. But it is pressure that is personal. You just want to get married. You feel like you're getting too old. You feel embarrassed sitting at the singles table at the weddings. There are not the kind of real pressures that a woman who was a widow back then would have to face. Where am I going to eat? How am I going to pay for food? Who's going to clothe my children? And so, understand that Paul is addressing widows and singles in a time when being a single woman especially was much, much more difficult than anything you will ever experience in your life. Even if you choose to be a missionary in a third world country, you have contacts and finances that are forever linked to the United States of America. And though you may live in the same hut as they do and may have to walk the same two miles to get clean water as they do, you will never fully experience what they do, and you will never fully understand the pressures and difficulties of life as a single person in Paul's day. And so when you read these passages and say, yeah, but Paul doesn't get it. Paul doesn't understand that I'm, I'm just one of a three single women in, in a church of married people, and they're all getting, got, having kids, and, and it's so wonderful. It's so hard. Oh, you don't know what hard is being single, my friend. And Paul is addressing those people, knowing full well what they go through, knowing full well how much the church has to sacrifice to take care of these widows especially, and saying, I prefer it if you stay single. But he says, if you choose to remarry, that's good. And again, for younger widows, later in 1 Timothy, he says that's the preference so that they can have money and survive. When Paul says that you can remarry as a widow in the Lord, obviously he means you need to marry a Christian. 
whether or not your first husband was a Christian. But this also has the implication of marrying a Christian in a way that honors the Lord. To marry in the Lord. Then we get to verse 40, which simply repeats his previous argument that being single is the better option. Even adding this time that the widow will actually be happier if she remains remains single, though that does not seem to be the case, especially given the cultural context I've just explained. We go back to why he wants us to remain single in the first place, which is the excellent, undistracted joy of maximum service and devotion to the Lord. And so he says you would actually be happier. And then at the end of verse 40 and at the end of the chapter and his teaching on singleness, Paul says that he has the Spirit of God. He says it in a kind of strange way. I think that I also have the Spirit of God. This is again a reminder that he has apostolic authority as well as the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. His commands then were God's commands and his advice. This is very important because singleness is advice. Paul's advice is God's advice. We need to take all of this as from the Lord. But the way he phrases it seems to also indicate that he is taking yet another slight jab as at the ascetics in Corinth who may have been convincing the Corinthians that married people are sin if they have sex or single people are in sin if they get married and they convince them by saying, oh, we have the Holy Spirit and thus they were able to persuade the Corinthians in this ungodly teaching to convince them that these things were sin or at least morally wrong, morally bad. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. I have the Holy Spirit, and this is what I write to you. That yes, it's a preference to stay single, but it's not sin. Yes, it's good to refrain from sex from your spouse for a time for the sake of prayer, as we saw a few weeks ago, but it's not sin to have sex with your husband or your wife. And so to wrap it all up, We've seen these four final thoughts on singleness and marriage, the concession, the conditions, the conclusion, the clarification. Uh, And again, I've received a few specific questions that I will answer regarding singleness or how to choose singleness or marriage. The Q&A, feel free to send more. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, Let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided that in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us this wonderful privilege 
to either choose singleness or marriage. I pray for those of us who are married that you would help us to excel still more. Regardless of whether our spouse is a believer, whether or not our spouse is walking with the Lord, whether or not our spouse is fulfilling their roles in Scripture, may we individually seek service to our spouses. May we seek their happiness. May we seek our biblical roles and apply them. For those who are single and wondering if they should get married, even those who are dating or engaged, wondering if they should get, be married or single, I pray that they would apply and think through and pray through biblical principles, not just selfish or worldly principles or not those at all. I pray, Father, for those who are single and are actively pursuing and have decided in their hearts to get married. I pray that that you would use their remaining time as single to not just use their last weeks or months or years to fulfill their selfish desires that they think they can't fulfill when they're married, but to use their time and resources now to do what someone who is single permanently would do to maximize their service and worship and to prepare their hearts to have a biblical marriage. For those who are undecided, Father, please help them to to know and commit and either way to give you all the glory and all that they have. And should they change their mind and decide to get married in the future, that they would look back and say that they did it well. That we would all, regardless of our marital status, would look back and be able to say, we did it well by the grace and power of God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we close in song.